Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, I also hung a, a blanket up on the shower, which hopefully, how is this sounding? And also in back, there's hardly any lawn. So if he comes back here, hopefully it won't be too long. We'll just see. Why don't we give it a go and then just, if, you, if you're okay. I've already warned my son that I'm on a podcast, so. Must be difficult for you, Dan, with your kids. Do they understand that dad needs to be in a quiet space? <laughs> well, I only have one kid, and he's okay. currently lying under this chair that I'm sitting in my wife's closet. So oh, sweet. Okay. so I asked him if he could be quiet, and he said, maybe. Okay. <laughs> From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, we decided to leave in a few snippets of the uh, technical difficulties that our guest and I experienced while endeavoring to record this podcast because they are a rather innocuous encapsulation of the difficulties, both small and large, that we're all facing these days in this pandemic. Our little mishaps also speak directly to the message that our guest, whose name is Kristen Neff, is bringing to the table in this episode. If we're going to survive this situation, we need to have patience, flexibility, and humor, and perhaps most importantly, we need to give ourselves a break. Kristen is an associate professor at the University of Texas in Austin and is one of, if not the, world's leading expert in self-compassion. That's a squishy-sounding term, but there is a lot of hard-nosed evidence behind this concept, and Kristen has really led the charge on uh, the research in this area. So in this episode, we talk about how to bring self-compassion to bear on things like overeating or under-exercising during a pandemic, the guilt some of us may feel over having it relatively easy in this time, the guilt some of us may feel over having not been our best or having lost our temper on occasions, and the shame some of us, I'm not going to name any names, but his uh, initials are Dan Harris, uh, may feel about not being as productive as we would like. Not coincidentally, these are all issues with which, as I just indicated, I have personally been wrestling during this time. To be clear, though, and, and you're going to hear Kristen argue this strenuously, not beating yourself up does not, in her view, equate to being lazy. This is not about relinquishing your high standards. It is about, she says, knowing the difference between healthy perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism. It's about going easy without going soft. The smart sparing use of the inner cattle prod. This was exactly the conversation I needed right now, and I think there's a chance it's something you may need to hear as well. So here we go, Kristen Neff. So I'm just curious to start, how are you doing in the midst of all of this? Um, I'm really doing okay. Um, the thing I was most worried about was my son, right, who's home, and he's, you know, he's autistic, so he really likes the structure of school, and this is a pretty big disruption. But thankfully, he's adjusting well. You know, he's adjusting to his online classes, as long as the Zoom works properly, but everyone gets upset when the Zoom doesn't work properly. But so because he's adjusting, I think, um, you know, I'm okay with it all. So I'm, I'm definitely busier than normal. I think a lot of people are understanding that self-compassion isn't important at a time like this. So I'm doing a lot of interviews and podcasts. But um, personally, I'm okay. 
So thank goodness. I'm very grateful for what I have, put it that way, that I can work from home, for instance. So how about you? I'm okay. Uh, You know, on the subject of self-compassion, I do notice that I, you know, I, like you, am, am busier now than... Oh, I hear the I hear the oh, leaf damn. blower. It's it's okay. It's okay. Let's power through it. Okay. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's just in back. <sighs> well, I mean, actually, maybe that's a maybe that's a subject we should discuss, which is okay. Uh, yeah, the, the vagaries it, of doing this on the fly with like okay, well, let's talk about it. it. Might be kind of funny for your audience, actually. I mean, I, to, to me, the th- the subject it brings to mind is perfectionism. Yes. And how a lot of us are perfectionists. I'm a perfectionist. It is very hard times for perfectionists right now. And how could self-compassion be useful in this context? Right. So in other words, when you're trying to do a professional interview, when the leaf blower is going in the background (laughs) and you can't control it, how do you deal with that? Right. Yeah. Well, so I know one thing that I have done personally is I found it first for the first couple of weeks of the pandemic. I was all focused on making sure I had like a, a month's worth of food in case the supply chain breaks down, making sure I have, you know, hand sanitizer, gloves, masks, all those things. And I kind of, you know, it took me a couple of weeks. And by the way, I think it's appropriate for sometimes just to be on full on emergency mode. You don't think about your emotional stuff. I think sometimes compartmentalization is useful to get the job done. But then once things were a little more, you know, secure and I, I felt like I had the supplies I need, I really had to let myself feel the stress of it all. And so I actually did use self-compassion. Um, for instance, Mentally, I haven't felt a lot of stress, but my body's carrying a lot of stress, I noticed. So like the stress is going somewhere. I felt a little, you know, nauseous, a tiny bit nauseous, and my stomach's a little bit off. And of course, the first thing is, is this, am I one of those asymptomatic COVID carriers? And that stress mm-hmm. comes up. But I really, I don't know for sure, but I'm coming to believe that it's probably just this is where I'm carrying my stress. So I've done a lot of work just kind of pausing, giving myself the time. I typically do it in the morning when I wake up or in the evening when I go to bed, just feeling the stress, validating the fact that it's difficult. Yes, many people have it more difficult, but it's difficult for all of us. And kind of using, um, you know, me, I like to use physical touch. I put my hand on my stomach where I'm feeling the stress, I'm feeling the slight nausea. And I, I kind of imagine that I'm flooding myself with kindness and warmth, and care, and concern, and reassurance. And for me, it's really made a big difference, right? It means that instead of just powering through, I'm still powering through, but I have a little more emotional resources at my back as I do that. So I know personally, I found it very effective. Um, And Chris Germer and I, my partner, we've also led a couple gatherings, mass online gatherings for people, like thousands of people have signed up so that we can actually process the emotions of the situation, which is something you have to take the time to do intentionally. And it's been very helpful, I think. Let me just hone in on this morning and evening practice you described, yeah. of putting your hand on your belly. Just for anybody who's listening who may share my proclivities, my skepticism, my anti-sentimentality, you uh, know, that, that that you invoke things like, you know, putting your hand on your stomach and sending yourself reassurance and well wishes. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's feeling like, wait a minute, I would never do anything like this. Right. I think the retort to that is science. 
Right. Yeah. So again, we, we have enough, we don't have as much as I would like, but we do have a fair amount of physiological data on what happens to the body when we give ourselves compassion. And it's very simple, right? So we know there's the sympathetic nervous system, which is the, the reactive fight or flight response. And then there's parasympathetic nervous system, which is we feel safe, we feel secure, and it's related to feeling um, affiliated with others, belonging. And so what you're doing with self-compassion quite literally is you're tapping in to this system. Sometimes it's called the tend and befriend response or the attachment system, or there's a lot of names for it. But basically, it's parasympathetic. In other words, it calms us down and it helps us feel safe. And a lot of the pathways to this system are physically. Because if you think a baby, you know, when a baby's born, they're they feel safe and calm based on their parents, but there's no language. You know, the parents can't communicate to the baby by talking to them. So the signals are things like tone of voice, you know, physical touch. The brain is designed to process things like tone and physical touch as a signal of safety. And so when you tap into that through self-compassion, and again, we, we aren't used to doing it, but the system still works, right? So for instance, when you bond with your son, you're doing all these things without even thinking about it. You're bonding. And, you know, I know he's a little older now, but when he was a baby, you were bonding with him through this care system that we as mammals all have access to. And so the, the cool thing about self-compassion is what we know from the research is you can also access that system through things like saying kind, supportive words to yourself, especially in a tone that's caring, using physical touch. It helps us calm down. We reduce cortisol. We increase things like heart rate variability. We feel safer. And that sense of safety allows us to function more uh, efficiently. So get a little granular about what you're doing for you. Right. Walk us through the steps. So if we want to do a version for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, so I've been so busy lately. I like to have a, a regular meditation practice where I sit for 20 or 30 minutes on my cushion. Um, recently, I found I've been so busy that's actually been hard to do. So I just, like I say, I do this first thing when I wake up in the morning that, you know, that time when I don't have to wake up at a particular time so I can lay in bed for 30 minutes when I'm not really quite ready to get up or when I go to bed. And this is actually when I practice. It's a good time to practice because you're relaxed, you're in bed, you know, you're laying down. So for instance, usually, usually um, it always has to start with mindfulness in the sense that you need to know what you're experiencing in order to respond in a kind and compassionate way. And believe it or not, because we're so busy and because we're in, you know, fix it mode or, you know, what do I have to do or prepare mode? At least we were for a long time. I think maybe we're in the next phase now. We often aren't even aware of our struggles. You know, we feel a little tense, but we're just kind of working through with this tense feeling without pausing to say, oh, wow. I feel really stressed and tense. Where do I feel that in my body? And so that's what I had to do, like quite literally. Where do I feel this in my body? I had to pause. Okay, oh, I see. Yes, that, that's actually, I realized now that nauseous feeling I mean, is actually stress. And so I just work with it by putting my hands on my stomach. And I actually, you might say, bring in some love. And I know love is in a scientific term, but it's it's uh, really conveys what we're doing, right? Feelings of warmth, of care, and connectedness. And so I bring those feelings of love and care to myself for my own struggle, for my own stress. So m the mindfulness kind of validates that this is suffering, right? 
So, you know, Dan, I I have a three-component model of self-compassion, but it's not just theoretical. It's actually almost like a step-by-step guide of what to do. First, you need to bring in the mindfulness, and then you need to bring in kindness, right, which I talked about, the kindness of care and warmth and love. But then very important for it to be compassion as opposed to self-pity is bringing in awareness of other people, of interconnection, of common humanity. And that's just really been a a fascinating process in the midst of this pandemic, because normally our instinctual reaction is to feel like it's just me, as if everyone else in the world is having a normal, perfect life, and it's just me who's struggling with this health issue or with this relationship issue or the mistake I just made. This is really a very rare opportunity as human beings for us to practice common humanity, because quite literally... Billions of people are dealing with similar issues in terms of dealing with the COVID issue. Yes, people are dealing with it to different extents. Some people are actually sick. Some people have lost a loved one. Some people are just scared. But nonetheless, we are all basically, our life has been changed from the same circumstance. And so actually taking some time to contemplate that and to realize that we are experiencing this you know, literally as a shared humanity. Um, and, and what happens when you do that, when you start feeling your connectedness, is it naturally starts to counter those feelings of isolation we have, especially the isolation of being shut in, not being able to meet our friends and go out in the world. And so you really need all three pieces, I have found personally in my practice, to sustain a state of self-compassion. So I'm going to continue to be uh, granular here. That, that's fine. This three-part process that you're describing, I use this. Uh, it's been it's made, really been useful for me. So just back to you in bed in the morning or right before you go to bed, it would look like the first step is mindfulness. One way to rephrase that just to be a little glib is the first step is admitting it, you know, to seeing <laughs> right. it clearly. Or noticing it. Validating yes. it. Validating yes. is also a very good word. Like, how oh, this is hard. Yes. This is this is, yes. this is hard. Sometimes is. I say this is a little judgmental, but sometimes I just my language that I like is this sucks. You know that that works perfectly well. You know, and and for your common humanity phrase, you know, the good one is <laughs> happens. <laughs> you know, if, if that works for you, it conveys the same message, right? It's not. Unusual. Now, of course, this particular situation, well, it is unusual, right? Hopefully it's a once in a lifetime event. We don't know for sure. But in many ways, you know, if you look historically, it's not unusual, right? There have been world wars, there have been pandemics before. And in some ways, what happened is because we hadn't had a big global event like this, we've kind of gotten to a little bit of a bubble thinking that this is normal. And that something happens at a worldwide level is abnormal, but historically it actually isn't abnormal. And again, this is not to downplay the pain of it. It's not to um, belittle any of it. It's just to kind of open our minds to the fact that this is part of how life unfolds. And what that does when we can acknowledge that is it helps us soften our resistance to it, right? And so what we know from all the mindfulness research is the more we resist reality and say, this shouldn't be happening, you know, I'm trying to fight what's happening, the actually the more suffering we cause ourselves, both physiologically and mentally and emotionally. 
So when we can recognize, oh, okay, this is part of life, you know, everyone deals with their own version of this type of situation, this type of pain. It gives us a a little more perspective. For instance, yeah, my pain's difficult, but there are people experiencing worse pain, absolutely. So it gives some perspective and wisdom. And it also allows us to fight it a little bit less. Oh, right. Okay. It's not like anything is wrong. This is just the way life works. It happens. And when you do that, you can almost feel the relaxation in your body when you, when you stop fighting it as something that shouldn't be happening. You open to the fact that it is happening. And then that opens the door to thinking, well, then how can I get through this in the best way possible? A teacher I know who's been important to both of us, my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, I know you've studied under him too. He has an expression, part of his teaching technique is to use these phrases over and over again, little little sort of mantras or slogans. And one of them is, anything can happen at any time. Yes. And... I like to keep that in mind because you, know, you think you've got a big plan for the day, but then you sprain your ankle or then you, uh, your mom calls and something terrible's happened or whatever. And that is that is just the law of the universe. Anything can happen at any time. You know, another slogan that I've been using a lot, and I, I use this a lot before this happened, is happiness is not dependent on circumstances, right? So when your happiness depends on circumstances being a certain way, you're going to be unhappy a lot of the time. But when you get to the point, and by the way, I'm not always like this, but sometimes I am. I'm able to experience this, that happiness is not dependent on circumstances. Happiness kind of comes from how you relate to whatever's happening. Can you relate to what's happening in kind of an accepting, loving way in which you realize you're actually part of this larger unfolding that you're approaching what's happening from a very ego-based standpoint? You actually are happier. And so when I use that slogan, it helps me to let go of wanting circumstances to be a particular way and getting my happiness from the way I'm relating to whatever's happening. And, you know, if you look at the people who are really, you know, I admire so much like Joseph Goldstein or a lot of these amazing teachers or His Holiness the Dalai Lama, part of the reason they're so happy (laughs) is because their happiness isn't dependent on things being a certain way. Their happiness comes from, you know, how they are relating to the life, which is constantly changing moment by moment. But the way you hold what's happening can be more steady and constant. Yes. Okay, so back to you in bed. Uh, The first step is using mindfulness to, you know, hone in on the raw data of the physical sensations emanating from your abdomen. And any emotions. And so, of course, the emotions are part cognitive, part physical. So how am I feeling? And often, especially in a situation like this where... I can be a little bit obsessive compulsive. Maybe that's not the right word for it, but I can really focus and get stuff done. And that's that can be a good thing. But what happens when you really focus and get stuff done is when you're so focused and being focused means you're, you're focused on a particular goal and you're tuning everything out. And that's what focus means. And it's a useful skill. But if you're too focused and you tune out the other information, which is really important, like, how am I doing? (laughs) You know, so I have to kind of consciously ask myself, well, how am I doing emotionally? And I actually intentionally take a pause to check in with myself. How am I doing? What am I feeling? And if I notice, which often is the case, oh, there's some stress, there's some worry, there's some frustration, whatever's going on, then I actually intentionally work with it by, again, bringing in the sense of connectedness and the kindness. And and I have to say, the love really is 
the key factor. It seems to make the biggest difference. Bringing in the love, it changes everything when love is present. Let me just jump in because uh, I, I, I agree. So, But I just want to make sure I'm being super clear about the steps okay. for the listeners. So okay. one is what's going on? Can I see it clearly? Mindfulness. Yes. Two is taking a moment to contemplate the fact that you're not the only person dealing right. with this. Yeah. And I'm not alone. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and three is the love. Yes. Now, there's not like an absolute rule if you wanted to go first to the kindness, then to the common humanity. You you could really switch those around. What you can't really switch is the mindfulness, because if you aren't aware of what you're going through, the pain, then the other steps are kind of almost irrelevant. So you need to start with mindfulness. It's kind of the foundation. And not only do you have to be aware of it, you have to be willing to be with it. So you might be aware of it and go, woohoo, don't like that, I'm out of here. You know, and your mind goes racing off to making breakfast or whatever you want to do. So the mindfulness notices and then is able to be with whatever's arising without too much resistance. Uh, And then you bring in the connectedness and the love and the order you do it isn't so important from my experience anyway. Point well taken. When it comes to the third step, which can also be the second step, the love part, (laughs) I know that for me, I use the traditional loving kindness phrases, may I be happy or may I be free from suffering, things like that. What what do you what do you recommend? So, you know, I think people are really different. Personally, the traditional loving kindness phrases aren't so effective for me. And here's why. And they are for many people and they're wonderful. But because I find that if I say, may I be well, may I be happy, and I'm feeling like crap, it almost sets up a type of resistance. It's almost Mm -hmm. like I want things to be other than they are. May I be happy, I'm not happy. So for me, what's more effective is to say, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I kind of use, I address myself in the you form. I'm so sorry you're feeling this way, darling. You know, is there anything I can do to help? You know, I I kind of express my sympathy for the pain. And so a kind of implicit in the, is there anything I can do to help? Is the sense, I want you to be happy. But for me, the may I phrases don't work. For some people, they do. So for instance, in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which, you know, my colleague Chris Germer and I developed, actually Chris developed this wonderful practice for people to find their own phrases And he asked people, what is it that you wish someone would whisper in your ear right now, which is exactly what you need to hear, right? And for some people, that may be what they want whispered in the ear is, may you be happy. For others, it's something else. You know, I love you. It's going to be okay. You aren't alone. And so really tailoring the phrases to what speaks to you is really worth taking the time to do that. Because like I said, For me, I mean, after 20 years, the loving kindness phrases still don't really sit with me because I have that reaction of feeling that it's my, my, my brain wants to grab onto that as a form of resistance. Although for me, like I say, for many people, they work wonderfully. So back to your phrase of, you know, I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do to help? Um, you know, referring to yourself as darling. Is that a little schizoidal? Like, uh, you know, like, wait, 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 who's talking to who here? Right. Well, so I I really do think that the whole idea of part psychology has a lot of validity. So there's an amazing therapy system called Internal Family Systems um, developed by Dick Schwartz, which talks about that we have different parts of ourselves, right? And yeah, for some people, it can be like schizophrenic when you actually believe the parts are different. 
But naturally, we have different perspectives. So for instance, Dan, I've heard you talk often about, you might look in the mirror and you might say, oh, you aren't looking so good, Dan, or or some sort of critical (laughs) comment. Well, so we do it naturally all the time with our self-criticism, right? We speak to us as, you are this, you're such a this, you're such a that, or you aren't good enough. And so we're just actually used to that different voice. And so we can actually learn to develop an inner compassionate voice or you might say, our, our, listen to the part of ourselves that is already compassionate. And then you can actually have a dialogue. This is really cool between your inner compassionate voice and your inner critical voice. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's all metaphorical because not only are we not literally parts, you might even say we aren't literally a separate self, right? We are all part of this larger unfolding process of life. And, we know that in many ways, the idea that we're separate from life as an individual is all an illusion. So in many ways, um, it doesn't matter how the illusion is playing out, whether the illusion is that you're one self, or the illusion is that you're five different selves, as long as you have got some basic awareness that none of it is actual, real, you know, reified concrete. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I mean, I've been, there are two things that are interesting there. One is the Buddhist notion that the self is an illusion. Um, But the other thing that just came to mind as you were talking there is I've done a tiny bit of reading about the sort of modular model of mind in psychology that we, Mm -hmm. just as you said, we have these different programs that are competing for salience in the mind. If I kind of think about it like a magic eight ball, you shake it up and one (laughs) tile comes to the top at any given moment that tile that's running you right now might be anger or jealousy or compassion or whatever. And so you can have them talk to one another. Yeah, you can. I've actually done a lot of um, internal family systems therapy. And it was for me the most, by far the most effective therapy I've ever done because it does recognize that we have these different parts. Or you can think of them as habit patterns, right? Each of these habitual ways of reacting have been formed by different types of circumstances. And so they have some coherence in the same way that a pattern, any habit has coherence, right? So if you have a habit of, let's say, uh, overeating or you have a habit of, I don't know, slouching or something like that, these are coherent patterns of behavior. that They aren't like, they don't have their own ontological status. They're just habit patterns. But they they do have um, coherence over time because they've been reinforced behaviorally and through situational context. And that's what I think of these parts are. Now, some people, I have to say, some people from a more spiritual perspective see the compassion itself as not something that's conditioned by habit. So from a Buddhist perspective, or from, I think, a lot of people from religious perspectives, maybe a Christian perspective, for instance, they might see this compassionate loving self as coming from the outside, maybe, you know, God, for instance. From my point of view, I think it's not so important (laughs) whether or not we think of that as a conditioned habit pattern or something larger. I think what's important is that we have access to all these parts of ourselves. It's so interesting. Let me go back to where we began this discussion, because I don't want to give short shrift to perfectionism. Okay. Um, We talked about your three-step process for self-compassion, which personally I found to be incredibly helpful. Would that be something we could bring to bear on perfectionism in an era where where the perfect seems very firmly out of 
uh, our reach. Uh, you know, just this podcast as an example, like we're <laughs> continually bumping up. My son's knocking on the door. Your leaf blower guy is out there. So h- how do we, yeah. how can we be self-compassionate at a time when, when we, we can't achieve the perfection we'd like? We, can, we never can, but definitely now it's really hard. Right. Yeah. I mean, so this is exactly the time to practice self-compassion, right? So um, first of all, so let's, let's take a little example about the guy doing my leaf blowing is outside and or hearing his sound occasionally. So the first thing to do is actually just notice, oh, that's a little irritating. You know, there's actually a little bit of suffering is too strong a word for it, but there's a little bit of an agitation there because both you and I would like the sound to be without these distractions, right? So just noticing, okay, there's the sound and it's, it's a little irritating, okay? Well, you know, sounds like this, things that are happening like this, it's, it's part of life, right? That That's kind of just the way it works. It happens. And then can we be kind to ourselves? Maybe the kindest thing to do, which you and I have chosen to do, is just, well, it's okay. You know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. We will just work through it. And we aren't going to let ourselves be, have our interview be derailed because there's a tiny annoying sound in the background. Now, that, that may be the kindest thing to do in this situation when there's not a lot of control. But in other situations, the kindest thing to do may be to try something different. And that's why wisdom is so important in self-compassion. Um, so the wisdom to know when, when is it time to accept the things we cannot change, like the serenity prayer, and when is the wisest thing to do to try to change something when we actually can change it. And both, both approaches are aimed at the alleviation of suffering. Sometimes the best way to alleviate our suffering is to accept what is. Sometimes the best way to alleviate our suffering is to try to change what is. You know, and you give it a try and it works or it doesn't work and you either try again or you let go. I mean, we don't really know. It's, it's moment by moment. But again, the eyes owe us on the prize, which is the alleviation of suffering. Mm. And so perfectionism causes a tremendous amount of suffering. And yet, what motivates perfectionism, right, if you really look at what motivates perfectionism, it's really wholesome ideals. You know, you want it, maybe you want to be, be of service to others. Maybe you want to be the best person you can be. Maybe you don't want to be criticized by others, which would be painful, you know, the reason you're perfectionistic, if you really were to unpack it and unpeel it, comes from these wholesome desires to be free of suffering, to be safe, to kind of, you know, to thrive and be happy. That's why you're perfectionistic, because you want to thrive and be happy. And once you realize that, oh, I see, that's why I'm acting this way. Well, is the way I'm approaching it, is it really helping me to thrive and be happy? Or is it actually causing unnecessary suffering? So this healthy perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism. Healthy perfectionism is just having high goals for yourself, you know, shooting for the moon, trying your best. And then what we know from the research quite clearly is self-compassion leads to healthy perfectionism, having high standards, but not maladaptive perfectionism, which is if you don't reach your goals then you beat yourself up. And then once you start beating yourself up for not reaching your goals, a whole cascade of negative events happen. Um, You become more anxious because you've just beaten yourself up. You become more fearful of whether or not you're going to succeed. That performance anxiety actually interferes with your ability to do your best. And you might develop fear of failure. And eventually you may just give up, right? Or you maybe don't give up, but you're so stressed that you aren't happy and, you know, you start snapping at others. So... 
adaptive, you might say, um, perfectionism or healthy perfectionism. You shoot for the best. If it doesn't work, maybe you try something different. You pick yourself up and try again. Maybe you make adjustments. Maybe you keep on the same path. Maybe sometimes the wisest thing to do is just let go of that goal and try something else. But, you know, what we're really doing is, our, what we're trying to do is achieve the alleviation of suffering and to be able to thrive and be happy. All of these routes are going toward that same goal, but just some are a little more effective than others. <laughs> compassion is, again, the research shows pretty clearly that compassion is a more effective way to achieve that goal than things like self-criticism. More 10% Happier after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. So if it's cool with you, Kristen, I'd love to keep ticking through various ways in which I, and I think many others, have the potential to make this bad situation, the pandemic, worse for ourselves. So yeah. we we talked about perfectionism, but let's go to a related issue, which is productivity. Right. So I noticed that I somehow, the story I'm telling myself about how much I need to get done 
is on steroids. And there have been some great articles, one in The New York Times in particular, about how, like, you know, we should maybe take a moment and stop trying to be so productive, not try to use optimize every second of every day to get things done. And for somebody who was telling me about a tweet from some productivity expert on that got sent out, it said, you know, if you haven't used this downtime to start a new business, then you're a failure. Oh, my um, goodness. <laughs> And so I would love to hear reflections from you and maybe even practices from your end for this psychology that I think is quite pervasive and pernicious around productivity. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a very productive person myself. You know, I've gotten a lot done and um, I have that drive in me to get it right and to achieve. But another one of my little mantras is good enough, (laughs) right? So in other words, you want it to be good and at some point, It becomes good enough, even if it's not perfect. (laughs) And so when I do something and I know it could be better, but I realize it's actually not worth the extra effort in terms of the toll on my resources to do it one more time, I'll say, is it good enough? And if it is, I can actually stop there. And so that's one way, and that's a very self-compassionate phrase, is good enough, right? Uh, It wouldn't be self-compassionate if it's really bad, and because if it's if it's really bad that it doesn't help you, it doesn't help other people, and that's not you know meeting the goal of trying to do good in the world. But if it's good enough, then that's you know then you you can stop there. So I think it is important to take some downtime. So for instance, with me, that's one of the nice things about having my son at home is he's in school from ten to two, and he's pretty good at entertaining himself and contacting his friends by Skype and stuff. But because I've had to make sure that, you know, not that I entertain him, but that I meet his needs because he's home more, we've been taking walks almost every single day. And that's been really nice. And so I've been able to use the time with my son as downtime. So I can just say, okay, let it go. You don't need to get that done. It will be okay. Let's take an hour or two just to take a walk and spend that time with my son. In other words, I, I appreciate the urge of productivity because I'm one of those people too. But I have found that if I really listen to myself, what do I need in the moment, then I am able to stop and say good enough. So I like this example of you taking a walk with your son. I, I, the analog on my end would be we started one really good thing that's come out of the pandemic for my family is that we now have a routine of evening meals together. And but I notice occasionally I'm sitting at dinner and maybe there's a lull in the conversation or my son is, you know, going over his favorite Scooby-Doo monsters and I'm tuning out where the dialogue comes up. Oh, what's on my to-do list and beating myself up for not having gotten enough done. And uh, I, f- I forgot to make this call, et cetera, et cetera. So would that be a good moment for the aforementioned three-step self-compassion sort of on the fly? Yes, absolutely. Right. And so, you know, it's interesting. You beat yourself up for not doing your to-do list. I beat myself up for not paying attention to my son. So, you, you know, there's lots of <laughs> angles there to feel like you aren't doing what you want to do. Because um, I do the same thing. I'll, I'll slightly tune out and I'll start thinking of like maybe some, maybe I'm writing a paper. and Oh, that's a really good point. I should go make that point in the paper. Uh, and what my son does actually is he'll <laughs> He'll actually go like, he'll get in my face, he'll make direct eye contact with me, and so that I can't tune him out. And it's like, he's a really good reminder. And so I beat myself, oh, Kristen, am I, I'm tuning my son out. I shouldn't do that. Um, so I think all of it is worthy of compassion, right? And so 
I've talked to you before. One of my favorite, another one of my favorite compassion phrases is that the goal of practice is to become a compassionate mess, right? And so there's many ways we can be a mess. We can be a mess by being over-focused and tuning out important things like our children or taking downtime. We can be a mess by not being productive enough. Life is messy and we're always getting it wrong. That's, that's the nature of life. And so if your goal is actually just to be compassionate toward whatever form the mess is taking in that moment, that can get you through it, right? And so let's say to take specifically your example, you're at the dinner table, uh, your son's watching Scooby-Doo, you think, oh gosh, this is a moment I could actually get something done. And the, and the part of you that's really into productivity says, you know, Dan, you aren't getting enough done. First of all, you can just pause and say, okay, well, well, how do I feel about this? What's coming up for me? Okay, mm, you know, actually, it's a little bit of suffering or, or it, maybe, again, maybe that's too strong a word. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable when I hear that voice saying, Dan, you aren't getting enough done. So the, and you're mindful of the pain. Um, then you can remember common humanity. Well, you know, you know, of course, in this situation, we can't be productive 24-7. You don't even want to be productive 24-7. This is just part of life. We, you know, we've got human limitations. We can't get it done all the time. And then you could just kind of think about, well, what, what do you need to support yourself in that moment? Maybe some words like, it's okay, you can, you can get to it later. Or uh, I'm going to ask you, Dan, what do you think would be, what would you need to hear in that moment? Let's say you had a good friend a colleague who is telling you, hey, Dan, you know, I'm at the dinner table and I'm beating myself up because I'm not productive enough. What would you say to that friend? Well, I think for me, a lot of what is driving the productivity is, and I've done some work around this, um, is fear or a sort of sense of lack of, I, I won't be safe if I don't uh, kick in every aspect of my life. And right. I think I have got 10% of the time I can remember to kind of whisper to myself, you know, this is a situation that's out of your control. It might be a good time to take it a little bit easier. And mm -hmm. no matter what happens, most likely you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if I get super sick and end up in the ICU, that may not be true, but right. most likely I'm going to be okay. And if I don't finish everything on my to-do list, I'm almost certainly going to be okay. Right. And so does it help you to say something like, it's going to be okay? Or something, so sometimes, because sometimes it's not okay, right? So if you get sick or in the ICU, it may not be okay. But something like, I will support you, whatever happens, would that be effective? Or is it more messages like, I care about you and I, I really want to make sure that you aren't overstressing yourself. And I'd really, really love to see you relax a little bit right now because I think that would be good for you. Right? So there's different ways you could give the message. It's funny. I I might say a cousin of that to a friend. I don't know. That's interesting to think about how I would say that to myself. Uh -huh. For me, I have this barrier that you and I have discussed and that I get uh, s some podcast listeners get on me about this of having this resistance to sappiness. Right. So can you say it in a non-sappy way? Yeah, that's an interesting challenge. Well, let me think about how, what would I say to a friend? I would say... I would say a colleague, yeah, another sure. person who's a yeah. very well-known professional and has got a lot on their plate. What would you say to a colleague who's told you, hey, Dan, this is what I'm experiencing? I think I would say, I think you're doing a great job. And I think you need to remember that we're in a 
crazy situation that uh, would have been hard for most of us to predict and is completely out of your control. So I think now you ought to be thinking about both continuing your work to the best of your ability, but also taking advantage of this moment to give yourself a break. Is that sappy? Doesn't feel sappy to me. Okay. So, right. So that so it's a really good way to, to figure out what works for you in terms of the type of language that, that lands. And then you can just try it out with yourself. Yeah, I like that. What would you say to the, and I, I'm going to pretend like I'm asking and by for the a way, friend. The reason yeah. I'm sappy is because with my, with my son, I'm like, I'm very just naturally darling, sweetheart. I do that all the time with my son. <laughs> and that's just kind of, so that lands for me, but it doesn't land for everyone. And there's no one way to do it. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm sappy with my son. Okay. You know, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I'll say, I'll look at him, I'll say, I got to tell you something. What do you think I'm going to say to you right now? And he'll say, I know, I know, you love me. <laughs> uh, and so I'm really sappy with him. But uh-huh. I, I have this block that I th- I see the silliness to it. I also uh-huh. think it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. Uh, and to, gen- gender roles also play into it, you know, which yes, we, don't, we yeah. didn't choose to have these gender roles, right? They were kind of enforced on us, so... Interestingly, in my family, my dad is the sappy one and my mother is not. Uh Uh, I'm more like my mother, but my father used to say to me, you have a Jewish mother, it's just not your mother. Uh, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, I'm sure it's gender roles, but it's not, I mean, in my case, it's a little little bit more interesting. Um, So, what would you say to, I'm going to pretend like I'm asking for a friend here, but I suspect this is also in my psychology I hear from a lot of people that, you know, it's this inner cattle prod. It's this inner driving, uh, lacerating voice that if I didn't do this, I would never get anything done. Right. So that's an assumption, right? But have you really tested it out? And so, again, I think a lot of people make a false dichotomy. They think either I'm driving myself forward with a cattle prod or I'm being lazy and doing nothing. Right. But there's this third way of encouraging yourself <laughs> warmly to move forward because you care. Right. And again, I, I like to use the context of parent to child because I think that's familiar to a lot of people. You aren't being a good parent if you're just letting your child not go to school, eat all the junk food they want, not learn anything. Because if you care about your child, you're going to want them to grow and develop and all those things. But you don't have to use the cattle prod with your child to get them to go to school and to eat right. You can say, hey, I want you to go to school because it's interesting and I care about you. And this healthy food is so much better for you, right? We can motivate with kindness or we can motivate with the cattle prod. And there's a lot of research that shows that motivating with kindness is more effective than motivating with the cattle prod. And so it really is kind of an experiment, But remember that I think a lot of people are confused because they think the choice between the cattle prod and doing nothing, as opposed to trying this this third way, which is motivating with encouragement. Yeah, Um, I like that. You know, and also the cattle prod has so many unwanted side effects that it actually ends up undermining your motivation, stress, anxiety, all these things that actually undermine your ability to think creatively and to um, see various opportunities. Whereas if you're really stressed and have a negative mindset, you're actually not able to think as creatively. So it, yeah. it, it hurts your ability to do your best. 
And there's brain science here. You know, I, yeah, the, exactly. The, 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 when your amygdala, the stress, one of the areas in the brain associated with stress, is activated, the prefrontal cortex, the part where you can think creatively, clearly, it gets shut down and constricted in many ways. And so I think about amygdala activation a lot, both in my relationships with other human beings, like not yeah. wanting to get them so stressed that they can't think clearly, but also with myself. Yeah, exactly. So um, that sense of safety provided from the kindness and the acceptance. And again, the acceptance isn't that what you're doing is okay, right? It may not be okay, but you're okay, (laughs) right? So the acceptance is toward the person. Like the bottom line is if you fail, you know, you're still okay as a human being. I still love myself. But in terms of the behavior, you know, we're also going to try to have the behavior be as um, healthy as possible, precisely because we care. And that's the problem with the cattle prod, is the cattle prod often is, is like personal. It's like you are bad, as opposed to saying, you know, this thing you're doing isn't really working out so well. Can we try something different? This is all incredibly helpful. Let me ask about another, I think, psychology that is contributing to people making this pandemic worse for themselves than it needs to be sometimes, mm-hmm. is... I see from uh, and I, my team members, uh, the the producers who work on this podcast, we've talked about this, a sense of guilt that am I doing enough? Uh, am I am I, you know, lucky or privileged uh, in a way that's making me not as touched by this pandemic as others? Was it wrong for me to go to my summer house? Not that anybody on my team has a summer house, but, um, you know, I, I, I know yeah. people who have summer houses. So I think there's a there there's a running dialogue for a lot of people of self-castigation here around, am I getting away with something as opposed to other people who are getting sick, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So I think really the important question here is, is my behavior harming or helping people, including myself, Right. So, for instance, if you go to your summer house, are you harming anyone by that? In fact, you know, perhaps you can argue that, you know, you're actually helping people because you're in a more isolated area and you're reducing the chances of transmission. So, in other words, if we increase our own suffering, that doesn't make other people happier. Now, that's not to say that sometimes we do engage in behaviors that make things worse, right? So, like, some of the UT Austin students or my college decided to go to Cabo San Lucas and came back infective. And, you know, and that, that was actually a choice that ended up harming other people. And so what self-compassion does, this kind of, a, I think it's important here to make a distinction between shame and guilt. So guilt is I've done something that's harmful to someone else. Self-compassion is actually linked to guilt. It allows you to admit, oh, wow, I did something that was harmful, what can I do to repair the situation? Shame is somehow I am bad. I'm a bad person because I've done this. Shame doesn't help anyone, (laughs) right? Guilt can be helpful, but guilt's only relevant if you've actually done something that's harmed someone else. And if you haven't, then I think there's no need for guilt. But on the other hand, you know, you may want to think about, is there a way I can contribute? So just to give a personal example, a lot of people, you know, I'm very happy, I'd love to be on the show, Dan, but I've been getting a lot of podcast requests to the point where it's like, I'm not getting any of my other work done. So it's, it's a balance. So I want to be able to help because I think self-compassion can be very helpful in a time like this. So I try to do as much as possible, but I'm always weighing it against, 
you know, I need to also get my own work done. I also need to keep my sanity. And so if I were just to think about, oh, helpful, I need to help, I need to help, I need to help, and not take into account my own needs, that's not sustainable and that's not balanced, right? It's a little different than the example you gave, but we don't want to feel guilty for being fairly okay in this pandemic. And here's another reason we don't want to do that. The people we come in contact with are constantly picking up on our emotional mind state, just like we're constantly picking up on others. We aren't really individual. We constantly interact and um, we're emotionally resonating with each other. And, you know, we can have upward spirals or downward spirals of emotional reaction. If you were to stay, not go to your summer house and stay in the city and be really stressed and, you know, whatever you're experiencing, then all the Zoom interactions you have with other people, they're going to interact with someone who's more stressed and negative than they would if you were in your summer house and you're more peaceful and relaxed, then you're probably going to have more positive interactions with them. So it's, it's kind of a, a false dichotomy that somehow if I'm suffering, that it's, it's not going to take away anyone else's suffering. The more happy and well I can be, the more I'm able to have resources to help others and the more my interactions will be more positive with others. Yeah, uh, I really strongly agree with that. I mean, I, uh, oh, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, I was just going to say, um, but we also need to be aware that sometimes our behavior is selfish, you know, and we need the self-compassion to say, you know, actually, maybe I didn't need to buy those 10 packs of toilet paper, <laughs> You know, it's not that I'm a horrible person. I'm still an okay person. But maybe that behavior was not helpful. Maybe I should change that in the future if I can. Yeah. Just back to the happiness, you know, with Sylvia Borstein, who was on the show recently, was making the point that we sometimes feel guilty about feeling happy or having moments of delight or joy or pleasure in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Her argument was you should definitely take advantage of those because it will fortify you to be your best, to do your best, to be of most use in the middle of a terrible situation where a lot of people are suffering. So I really agree with that. Yeah. Let me ask one last question before I let you go, sensitive to your time. I think another area, and there was a big piece in the New York Times about this recently, that where a lot of us are doing a lot of suffering and self-laceration in the middle of this pandemic is overeating or, oh, yeah. or mm -hmm. not exercising enough, feeling like, oh, I, I, you know, I need to get on that bike or uh, I can't believe I just ate a bag of Cheetos, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. How can we bring self-compassion to this kind of self-care stuff that can get out of control? Yeah, yeah. And so, I, you know, I've certainly felt that as well. Like, like my, I'm, even with my son and myself, we're eating maybe a little less healthy than we would normally in a way of just kind of for comfort. And I do think it's really important to kind of step back and see the big picture of what we need to get through this, right? And so behaviors that normally may work against your well-being in the long run, in this time, maybe it actually does enhance your well-being, right? So in other words, taking it easy on ourselves, trying to give ourselves a little more slack, maybe having some comforts like that bag of Doritos that we might not normally do that actually could help us feel a little more calm in the moment or a little more uh, rewarded, right? A bag of Doritos is a reward and we aren't getting a lot of rewards now because we're, you know, stuck at home. Maybe that's a good thing. So really taking the time to have a bigger picture perspective and think, how can I care for myself right now in, in a variety of different ways, which maybe didn't apply a month ago. <laughs> you know, the bag of Doritos wouldn't have been taking care of myself a month ago, but maybe a bag of Doritos now is taking care of myself. 
because it gives me that sense of a treat or something, you know, happy, something kind of fun that I normally wouldn't have. So I, I really do think compassion is just, it's just so important that we ask ourselves, I mean, every single day, every single moment, actually, what do I need right now to be healthy and happy? You know, and the answer to that's going to change. Sometimes it actually may be a bag of Doritos, <laughs> believe it or not, you know? So I think the more we do that, the more we're able to meet our own needs, to be kind to ourselves. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean totally slacking off. Maybe the kindest thing we can do is to start that new project and just really let wisdom come in and ask that question. I ask it all the time. What do I need right now? And then I pause and usually the answer comes to me, right? And so just being willing to ask the question is a really useful one. Yeah, I mean, that kind of level of mindfulness, intentionality, sort of a stately pace to your life where you are checking in on the regular uh, rather than the way in which I conduct myself most of the time, which is kind of a frantic flinging from one thing to the next, can really help. And as it pertains to eating, you know, my... One of my favorite people these days is Evelyn Triboulet, who wrote, who sort of came up with this idea of intuitive eating. And she likes to have people ask themselves, what sounds good and how do I want to feel? Right. And if I can actually muster the intentionality to ask myself that before I eat, it can be really useful. And sometimes it is a cookie. And uh, and then sometimes when I eat 75 cookies and yeah. I'm feeling bad about myself afterwards, that's where a little self-compassion can be useful. It's like, all right, that didn't go so well, but this feeling's going to pass and you're going to have another opportunity to eat tomorrow. And and uh, maybe you can do a better job of, you know, not making yourself feel sick. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So I think it's really important during this pandemic, this idea of good enough, right? And also the idea of acknowledging we don't, but we don't have to feel good. You know, maybe good enough is not very good, right? In other words, it does suck. It is difficult, you know, and that's okay. And can we be the compassionate mess? Can we allow our lives to be, you know, frustrated and feel narrow and confined? And maybe we're gaining weight because we aren't eating as well or exercising as much. Um, But can we just bring compassion to that? And it also will pass, right? You know, this too shall pass. So it's okay if in this moment we aren't totally happy and fulfilled and growing and being positive about it. Maybe this is a time where collectively we can just say, this sucks. Aw. <laughs> right? It's, in other words, it's the awe, it's the care, the kind of kindness toward the discomfort, which is most important. And that's also which is going to carry us forward. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Is there is there anything I should have asked but didn't? Um, I'm trying to think. I, I I don't know if it's worth talking a little bit about the loneliness people are feeling. Yes, yes. Two days ago, we posted an episode with Dr. Vivek uh, Murthy, a uh, former Surgeon General who's written a book about loneliness, and we talked a lot about how to handle the loneliness so many of us are feeling in the middle of this pandemic. So how do you think we can bring self-compassion to bear on the feelings of being cut off? Yeah, so, so this is where self-compassion is really, really helpful, right? Because Loneliness, some of it is physical loneliness when we aren't actually having interaction with other people. But a lot of our loneliness comes from our own minds, right? Feelings of isolation, feelings that we're somehow um, cut off from others, that we aren't connecting with others. And again, this isn't necessarily physically. We can feel isolated in the middle of a party, right? 
when we feel that somehow we're different, that what we're experiencing is really different than things that other people are experiencing. And so the common humanity component of self-compassion actually allows us to tap into the truth, which is, you know, everyone suffers in their own way. What we're feeling is shared by other people. Again, the way it's, it may be manifested a little bit differently, the amount where they're experiencing is differently. But suffering is part of being a human being, right? And loneliness is also part of being a human being. And we can actually meet our own needs for connection to a much more powerful degree than we ever dreamed possible. So I'll give you a personal example. You're getting personal, Dan. Um, so I, right now I'm currently not in a relationship, right? And I, and I miss that. I miss those feelings of um, of connection and someone saying, you know, I love you, Kristen. I care about you, Kristen. All those things that we like to get out of a relationship. And I've actually taken it as a practice to just say those things directly to myself. And it's amazingly effective. It's not quite as good, (laughs) but, you know, it it really helps. So, for instance, if we're alone and we can't see other people, we can just say, you know, what what would I like to hear from a friend? We could say, hey, Kristen, you know, I'm really enjoying your company. Or um, that was a really fun thing that you just did. Or just, um, I really like you. Or just whatever, whatever comes to mind, the types of things we would like to get from other people, we can actually give it to ourselves directly. So that's one way self-compassion can help. We can actually meet our needs for connection personally, right? self to self. And then also just what it does is it cuts through the illusion of isolation and separation, right? Because it is an illusion, And this pandemic has really shown us that this separation is an illusion. We literally are all in it together. And so when we can open to that truth through compassion, we just naturally feel less alone. So, you know, there's many ways we can deal with the loneliness of what's happening. But a really important way is to connect with ourselves emotionally to help decrease that feeling of loneliness. But from a Buddhist perspective, it's interesting, this this practice that you teach. On the one hand, it can, properly understood, help us connect to the undeniable truth of interconnection. And yeah. uh, On the other hand, the, the critique you sometimes hear from Buddhists is self-compassion can reinforce the sense of a self, which is, of course, what Buddhism is hoping to undermine, the, the idea that we're a separate ego against the rest of the world. Yeah. And so actually what the research shows is self-compassion reduces the sense of separate self. It actually reduces self-focus. It actually reduces identification with the ego. And so also, and they talk about this in Buddhist traditions as well, there's kind of the relative self, the relative truth, and the absolute truth. So when I say... Kristen, I love you, you might say. And I I know it sounds sappy, but I do say that to myself, especially if I'm feeling like I need to hear it from someone else and that there's no one available at the moment. So you might say my relative self is connecting to my relative self. I also am able to realize that both of them are kind of an illusion, right? That I am part of this larger whole. And so you can work with what is, which is our ego structure. And I even sometimes talk about it as my ego structure or my personality. You can work at that level with also the awareness of knowing that it is not absolute truth. You can do both simultaneously. And when you do that, when you kind of um, help that ego structure feel safe, feel loved, 
feel valued, feel connected, then it's not so frightened that you might say that habit of mind isn't so frightened, doesn't cling so tightly to wanting to take over your prefrontal cortex because it's so frightened that it's going to die, right? So you help that ego structure feel safe, feel connected, and recognize the truth that is actually not alone. That's not the way things work. And when you do that, you're able to soften the grip of separate self and actually see the larger interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. Another mantra of mine I like to say is the only way out is through. That can be uh, used in a a lot of contexts. One is with pain. The only way out of pain is by accepting our pain with kindness, and then eventually it will pass. I also think the only way out of this illusion of separate self is by working with that illusion of separate self with a lot of kindness and compassion, and then it feels safe enough so we can let go. Beating yourself up. Shame and self-criticism are not exactly the the best, most effective tools for softening our sense of separate self, right? Nope. Nope. Well said. Everything today by you has been well said. I really appreciate your time and your navigating the various technical difficulties that the universe has thrown at each of us uh, during the course of this this morning. But thank you. Yeah, thank you. And again, to the listeners, I'm sorry if the noises have been too distracting. (laughs) (laughs) But you can be a compassionate mess, hopefully, with it. (laughs) (laughs) Great job, Kristen. Thank you. Really appreciate it. So much fun to talk with you. I love it. It's not like the standard interviews where people just ask the same questions. I love it. It's so much fun. (laughs) Big thanks to Kristen. Really appreciate hearing from her and also watching her model such patience in the face of the the relentless onslaught of technical mishaps. If you uh, really like Kristen and what she has to say and you want to hear more from her, you can check out the previous episode of the show on which she appeared, episode 209. It's entitled Kryptonite for the Inner Critic. That aired in October of 2019. You can also find out much more about her work on our show notes page, which can be found at 10percent.com slash podcast. Before we go, a quick item of business. If you want it, my first book, 10% Happier, is available at a discount for a limited time through Monday, April 20th. 10% Happier is on sale for $1.99 as an ebook and $6.99 as an audiobook. The ebook is available through Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Google Play, and the audiobook is available at Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, and Google. And yeah, go check it out or give it to somebody you uh, think might need it or somebody who needs a doorstop. Big thanks to the team who helped put this together. Samuel Johns leading the charge. Big thank you, Samuel. Matt Boynton at Ultraviolet Audio is our editor. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We also derive a ton of ongoing wisdom from our 10% colleagues, such as Ben Rubin, Jen Poyant, and Nate Toby. Also, big thank you to my guys at ABC News, uh, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you on Friday for a bonus meditation, and then we'll be back with another proper episode on Monday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. 
I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.